luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And what individuals should do is try to prepare for those opportunities. They may never come along. I mean, there was only one surge in Iraq during my military career. It just so happened that I was in a position to be selected by the president to command that surge. And in many respects, when you look back, you know, I spent my entire life preparing for that particular task at that particular moment. It may never have come, but the key is that it, if it did come, that you be prepared for it and that you are therefore perhaps lucky as a result. Hello, and welcome to More Intelligent Tomorrow, a wide-ranging exploration of the potential impact of AI on the world around us, as envisioned by the future heroes of the human and machine intelligence revolution. What are the future intelligence battles to prepare for? We discussed this and more with General David Petraeus in March 2021. And now, your host, Ari Kaplan. General, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Ari. Thanks for the invitation. I just wanted to start out thanking you so much for all of your service and appreciate your time coming on here. It was a, both are a privilege. Great. So let's start out by uh, asking, what is your view on the State of the Union? The State of the Union right now in the United States, if you're asking about that, is one that is perhaps on the mend, uh, I think might be the best description. Obviously, we've been combating a, a very lethal health cr issue, the pandemic. Over half a million people dead as a result of that, more than we lost in World War I, II, Korea, and so forth altogether. Now that fight, the momentum is now with, again, those who are countering that pandemic because of the vaccination process, the safeguards that people are still rightly taking and, and so forth. Uh, there's also, of course, a, a rebound a beginning in our economy. The economy, obviously, certain sectors, travel, tourism, big entertainment venues, and so forth, hurt very, very badly by the pandemic-induced shutdown and the necessity to close restaurants, bars, uh, and, and all the rest of that cultural locations. But that is also, again, starting to rebound, and I think is going to rebound very, very substantially this year. We could see literally the largest growth in a year in the U.S. in over 50 years as a result of coming back from a position that's obviously below where we would have been, and then enabled, uh, spurred on by unprecedented levels of fiscal spending to take care of those who have been so badly hurt by the pandemic-induced shutdown. So that's another aspect of it. And then I think uh, we're on the mend in terms of coming together to some degree as a nation, having had a very uh, hyper-partisan situation uh, in Washington and in many of our states as well. Uh, and the idea of, again, coming back together as a nation to combat common challenges, the pandemic, the economy, a variety of other issues that we have to resolve, whether it has to do with uh, our education system, comprehensive immigration reform, a variety of different uh, economic initiatives that are needed, and many in technology ensuring that we are on the cutting edge when it comes to certain technological advances, including those that we'll discuss the, today and 
terms of artificial intelligence and related fields. So all of that, I think, is ongoing. And I think that it is accurate, perhaps, then to describe our situation as being on the mend. And then if you go beyond our shores, uh, I think on the mend in the sense that there is a desire to reinvigorate, I think is the term used, our relationships with allies, with partners, uh, with international organizations uh, around the world. So again, I think that is an accurate description of the state of the nation. And obviously I'm very hopeful uh, and I'm actually quite I'm rationally optimistic, uh, I guess, that we will achieve success in these various efforts to complete that mending process. Well, great. Yeah, gl- glad to hear that optimism. You know, it's a great pivotal point in our country and world. And wanted to, you know, now get your thoughts on, you know, where do you see artificial intelligence? And even before that, the foundations of, you know, army intelligence uh, and the role in warfare today. Well, I think to put this in context and to ensure that we all appreciate how powerful artificial intelligence is, let's remember that it first wowed everyone by showing that a machine could beat the reigning chess grandmaster. Then it took on an even more complex game, the game of Go, which has multiple dimensions, not just two. Then it even beat humans among the most complex games that are out there, these civilization building games, if you will, and demonstrated an incredible capability in that regard as well. Uh, Indeed, DeepMind has been part of a lot of these. Uh, I know the the founders uh, of that and have enormous respect for them. And, you know, more recently now, when you look at warfare and what's going on in that realm, in a simulation, an aircraft that was piloted, if you will, by artificial intelligence, defeated an aircraft in a dogfight, an aircraft that was piloted by a human. So artificial intelligence continues to break through more and more and more. So this is well beyond machine learning, just the machine doing repetitive tasks. Uh, and again, learning a bit from it. This is, this is machine that, again, is just constantly improving its knowledge of what it needs to do to prevail in a certain endeavor uh, that is guided by certain rules. And again, it doesn't get much more complex than a dogfight. And indeed, artificial intelligence has proven its value even in that very, very complex activity. That's super exciting. And, you know, we also see, you know, perseverance on Mars with that autonomous vehicle. And I know race car drivers are building, you know, self-driving simulations with real life. So, you know, it's incredible to see these changes. But Do you see, are there uh, gaps today that still need to be filled for artificial intelligence and warfare? Well, I think there are big ideas that need to be wrestled to the ground, uh, big ideas on which there need to be agreement. It is routinely said as a reassurance, for example, by the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center of the Department of Defense that the human will always be in the loop. Well, the truth is, if you really dig into that a fair amount, you recognize the assumption around that statement is that the human will be in the loop 
when it comes to pulling the trigger, if you will. In other words, initiating a kinetic activity, having a robot shoot at a target, having a cyber tool initiate some activity in cyberspace. Again, whatever the domain is, and we're going to see systems in every domain, on the ground, in the air, in space, at sea and subsea, as well as, don't forget that last and newest domain of warfare, cyberspace. So machines that are powered, if you will, are guided by artificial intelligence are going to be operating in every one of these domains. But if you think about, just say, this most simple, a robot on the ground uh, that might be engaging another robot, if we keep the human in the loop in our robot, our robot's going to end up dead because the adversary probably will not have the human in the loop at that last minute. It may have the human in the loop, as it, as they would say, in the development of the algorithm and perhaps a command at some point in time when it is appropriate, given the context in which that robot is operating, uh, that it is weapons-free, as the statement is in rules of engagement, for example, when it comes to air defense, uh, ballistic missile defense, and so on. In other words, when the machine decides that the conditions have all been met, the machine can autonomously pull the trigger. And I think that's a very big deal. I think we will arrive at a conclusion that that is unavoidable, uh, that if your robot, your unmanned system is going to win an, an engagement, that it can't be held up at the last minute by somebody who pushes a button that means you can pull the trigger. Uh, so we're going to have to recognize the very big idea here that human input, the human in the loop, is going to be in the development of the algorithm, in the development of the the conditions that must be met, the checklist, if you will, that the machine will tick off that may be linked to facial recognition, gate recognition, other tools uh, that will enable the machine to ensure that what it is engaging is an appropriate target, be it a human or another machine. But that's the kind of complexity uh, we're entering. And, of course, keep in mind that these unmanned systems, whether they're semi-autonomous or autonomous, are all going to be linked by networks, and there are going to be enormous battles in cyberspace and in electronic warfare and other areas to try to shut down the adversary networks or to disrupt them or to literally destroy them. So this is going to be a very, very brave new world. And... All of our conventional notions of how wars are fought are going to be transformed very considerably by this. And needless to say, the side that arrives at the best in terms of the autonomous or semi-autonomous uh, unmanned system that is powered, guided by the best machine learning and artificial intelligence that side is going to have an enormous, uh, perhaps almost insurmountable, advantage. That's great to hear, and um, you know one reason why you know we 
as a country, as humanity, need to make AI as a priority. And I do love how you framed, you know, started out with the chess game. And in a way, the way you're talking that humans and artificial intelligence collaborate up and then, you know, for example, recognizing a face or recognizing the gate, then some people will try to do counter, you know, how can we disguise that? Well, there will be offense and defense. There will be counter AI strategies. There will people will cloak themselves. They will uh, have some kind of material that will provide a degree of stealth, perhaps. Again, there's going to be a constant back and forth, and the same will be taking place, of course, in cyberspace itself, because of course that's where the networks are, and the battle again between machines in cyberspace is going to be incredibly fierce, uh, just as it is now when it comes to the fight between offensive and defensive activities in cyberspace. And we've seen recently, once again, that the offense often is ahead of the defense. And keeping in mind, of course, this is a little bit like cybersecurity, being on the defense is a little like conducting a counterinsurgency campaign. The counterinsurgent has to protect everything, has to, or at least everything that matters. And that's a vastly greater realm than the offensive system has to focus on, which is to find a penetration point somewhere. Just the offense can just concentrate on one area, one vulnerability, one potential weakness, until it's capable of exploiting that, and it's now inside the system. Uh, And thus, defense in many respects is far more difficult than is offense. And keep in mind that offense, as we saw with the SolarWinds hack, with the recent Microsoft hack, is getting ever more sophisticated. And, and, And again, of course, it is enabled in part by machine learning, by artificial intelligence, and by just sheer networks that can be put together to carry out whatever diabolically clever scheme is developed. You're listening to More Intelligent Tomorrow, an artificial intelligence podcast brought to you in high fidelity by Data Robot. You know, we've talked about where we are today and wanted to get your thoughts, you know, looking forward five or 10 years from now, there's, you know, where where do you see in general the future of AI in in defense and intelligence? Well, I see it everywhere, actually. I don't think there's an area within the Department of Defense that will not be improved, will not be enabled by, again, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I'm talking, again, in the logistics arena, this will be very, very important. We see it in commercial aviation, as an example, where you've got sensors and everything, and they're constantly giving feedback. And then the service life of a particular object, be it an engine or a component of an engine, can be constantly monitored, measured. And of course, there's enormous learning that can come out of this, because there can be exploration of where the stress is, where are the weak points, where are the vulnerabilities? And of course, they can be addressed in future iterations. And of course, keep in mind that you can also iterate much more 
in the manufacturing process because we are going to go to additive manufacturing, to 3D printing, if you will, of increasingly sophisticated nature. And now you don't have just one cast that produces the part and you don't iterate with that part until you have a new cast for the formation of the part. Now you can iterate with every single production run because you can change how you employ the additive manufacturing capabilities. So you can look at any aspect, I think, any activity, whether it is in the Department of Defense or more broadly in the commercial realm, and you can see areas in which machine learning is going to enable advances. Artificial intelligence will do that. But keep in mind, it is also going to make redundant, as they say, humans in a number of different activities. Because, I mean, first of all, if it's repetitive, the machine will do it better, and the machine never gets tired, it never needs a break. You know, you might have to lubricate it periodically, top up the materials that it is using for its particular process, recharge it, what have you. But again, with repetitive tasks, we're already seeing that machines can replace humans. But of course, the advent of machine learning and then true artificial intelligence will take that to vastly greater levels. And ultimately, humans will be enabled by machines unbelievably. And ultimately, humans will be replaced to some degree, again, by machines and by artificial intelligence systems. That's what lies ahead of us. And in certain respects, that's wonderful. Some of the more monotonous and routine and repetitive tasks of life, again, can be performed by machines rather than humans. But the question is, what do those humans do? In what fields will there be increased demand for humans as machines replace them in certain sectors and certain industries and certain activities? Great. So what do you see humans still having a role over artificial intelligence and where artificial intelligence can help? And, and, you know, maybe what's the solution too? Well, again, I think that the humans do have to stay in the loop. I'm absolutely committed to that idea. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do as well as the smart thing to do. From a normative perspective, that has to be maintained. But where the human is in the loop uh, is going to change. And depending on the activity, depending on whether the target of a certain activity might take action before you can take action and so forth, that will start to drive, again, this idea that the human in the loop will be in the development of the algorithm and in the decision to allow the machine to make that final decision, uh, whether it's a kinetic activity or not to actually take that action. And of course, it will be in the blink of an eye, in a microsecond or what have you, in the kinds of time that we measure now in machine trading uh, that goes on with stocks, with the very, very huge increase in high-frequency trading in particular. But you're going to have those decisions made very, very rapidly when they're finally done. But that process that leads to that decision absolutely has to have 
the human in the development of it and in the determination of the conditions that have to be met in a variety of different ways. I mean, if it is a kinetic strike, as we do from drones in the military, for example, there undoubtedly will be a condition, no civilian casualties possible. Uh, There can be a condition, very minimal or no damage to civilian infrastructure. There can be a whole variety of conditions. And oh, by the way, machines probably can actually confirm those conditions at a certain point, at least when they're developed and ever more sophisticated, probably can do that better than can human beings. Uh, We may not be at that point, certainly when it comes to aspects of facial recognition or, again, gate recognition or a variety of other recognition tasks. But the day is coming, I think, where machines will do it much more rapidly and actually much more accurately. And that's the kind of future that we have to look forward to. And again, we do have to come to grips with this. I, I think you have to get past that notion that that a human is going to make the final decision, because if that's the case, your machine may lose. Yeah, great thinking and talking on all different levels, you know, but one of them is you're talking about the future. And I would say, what uh, are you most excited about with artificial intelligence? And like, what, what concerns you? What keeps you up at night with what our adversaries might be planning and how we can uh, better prepare for that? Well, I think in particular, what we all should be concerned about would be that potential or actual adversaries would reach certain capabilities that could be truly transformative, that could provide insurmountable advantages to that adversary's systems before we arrive at those capabilities. And and again, that's a fairly scary proposition. I don't want to take that too far because there's always going to be lots of other elements of how to counter uh, what is going on. And I mean, de- deterrence, for example, is a many faceted concept. But that I think is is quite worrisome and that there could be certain artificial intelligence capabilities that could be so transformative and so advanced as to give a, again, some kind of extraordinary advantage that can be capitalized. I mean, we're the first mover advantage, as we talk about in, say, in venture capital investing. Uh, That first mover advantage could actually be, again, insurmountable. And you are therefore at a major disadvantage in certain activities as a result of that. And I think that, again, is a very, very significant concern that all of us should have. And therefore, all of us and our allies and partners should want to arrive at these capabilities before or at least uh, at the same time as potential adversaries. In terms of excitement, I mean, again, this unleashes so many possibilities, I think, particularly, again, when it does come to some of the more mundane, more repetitive, more tedious activities in life. And we're just seeing the beginnings of what will be possible in this regard. And this is going to be another leap forward akin to those that we've had in the past. Um, When you think about lives, all that we have available to us right now that wasn't available even 10 years ago. And then the items that we have available that 
weren't available 100 years ago and so forth and so on. All of these have enabled our lives in a lot of ways. Uh, but of course, there are some drawbacks to these as well. And we have to be aware of what can happen if one just gets so consumed by, as an example of social media, and if you are inhabiting a silo in social media, an echo chamber, all of this kind of, I mean, these are challenges that we never even dreamed of. Uh, again, even 10 years ago, as I rethink, you know, what were we grappling with during the surge in Iraq when it came to media? You know, you didn't have just an operations center for your operations in combat, your war room. You you had a media war room where people were monitoring constantly what is on the news, what what are they hearing in radio, what what is the public being told by different networks, different outlets, and all the rest of that. And there was very little social media at that point in time. Certainly, we saw the beginnings of it, but you fast forward to now and think about what you have to monitor now to end a counter. If it is inaccurate, if it is inflammatory, if it is something that can undermine your campaign, where your biggest of the big ideas should be to try to be first with the truth, how do you counter those who are trying to be first with, again, propaganda or untruth or disinformation or what have you? So, I mean, think about when we were fighting al-Qaeda in Iraq and ultimately destroyed them, again, during the surge in Iraq, al-Qaeda in Iraq didn't remotely have what was so important about the Islamic State, about ISIS, which was it not only f developed a caliphate on the ground, it developed a caliphate in cyberspace, the virtual caliphate, if you will. And its ability in social media was a very significant capability that had to be combated. It had to be countered. And even as we were enabling Iraqi and Syrian forces to conduct the fight on the front lines, the physical front lines of the fight against the Islamic State in Mosul and Raqqa and other places, there was also a fight going on in cyberspace with a joint task force from built around Cyber Command and NSA assets that was seeking to disrupt the activities in cyberspace using social media platforms, uh, internet service providers, and so forth, even in advance of ultimately kinetically taking out that cyber center that existed in Raqqa and was such an important component of the Islamic State's recruiting and proselytizing and instructing and inspiring efforts around the world. In terms of misinformation campaign, that's like one of the both hot topics, but historically going all the way back, you know, ancient civilizations, that's a lot of times how they would win battles and change the fate of the world. Big part of the strategy. And now civilization is in a new phase where, you know, my kid's birthday party, one of the fun things was put his face on celebrities and, and these deep fakes. So easy to do. My kid could do it. So, you know, impersonations, misinformation, what are your thoughts on what's happening today and how can we potentially work around that, get around that? Well, it becomes ever more challenging. Again, what is true? What are the facts? I mean, do people agree on the facts? Is this real news or fake news? These are huge challenges, especially for a society like ours, which allow 
and are proud and you know, I'm, I'm proud to have fought for freedom of expression and freedom of the press and freedom of religion, et cetera, et cetera. I remember one time, in fact, when the press attacked me personally during the surge in Iraq at the six-month mark when Ambassador Crocker and I came back for the big six-month review. This is a very heated and emotional set of hearings that we had. And on the very first morning, I opened the center page of the New York Times. It was a full page spread attacking me personally by some organization, nonprofit. And I was asked the next day at the National Press Club, what did you think of that? And I said, well, I obviously didn't applaud it. But, you know, on reflection, I'm very proud to have fought for the right of those in the press or elsewhere to express their views, even if it means attacking me. The challenge now is that the means of attack are so broad, the means of propagating, again, misinformation, propaganda, and so forth, are so widespread and so varied and so numerous that the effort to counter them is very, very difficult. And I guess it puts a premium even more now on having individuals who can be trusted on government officials, elected officials, appointed officials, being seen as those who are trying to present the truth and who are doing that to the best of their ability. And when they make a mistake, acknowledge that they made a mistake and and so forth and, and try to learn from it, all the rest of this. So that is challenging in these times because, again, people can, I mean, the deep fake will be a particularly nefarious and diabolical challenge in this regard. Right now, it is still possible to determine pretty quickly with a machine, again, which is learning and artificial intelligence to identify deep fakes. But as they get ever more sophisticated, that task will require ever more sophisticated machines and artificial intelligence systems. And again, that battle is going to be going on. You know, we actually need in probably in our education system, to have some kind of education on media consumption, to understand, again, that certain media have certain viewpoints, uh, that if you tune into this channel, you're going to get this particular perspective, and the other hand, this other one's going to give you the other, and that these social media platforms uh, and algorithms that empower them and all the rest of this, people need to understand how that all operates so that at the very least, they are making educated and informed choices in the consumption of social media and news that is propagated by it, and can, again, make informed choices about trying to achieve a balance in what it is that they receive. But again, these are very, very challenging issues, and they're getting more challenging and more complex all the time. Yeah, it's a big challenge both on being able to make these deep fakes and then, you know, what you might call the post-truth world and people, you know, a sentiment globally of being anti-science or anti-evidence. Sure. That's where very credible voices have to be heard. They have to be added to the, the mix of information that is being provided. I do believe there still are facts. There still is truth. There, It still can be agreed on. You can argue about some aspects of it. But again, by and large, there are really facts out there. 
two and two really does equal four and various phenomena really are actually happening and so forth. But this adds again to the challenges uh, of trying to convey facts. And that's particularly difficult, I think, in a a system in a society that has the freedoms that we enjoy. And I guess it may be that we need to communicate, again, that you don't just have freedoms, there have to be some degree of responsibilities to try to at least be open to what reality really is and to what the facts really are. You know, as the technology improves and, you know, all these challenges and opportunities emerge, uh, you know, there's ethics that uh, come with it. One of the big topics we see really across all industries, you know, healthcare, finance, retail, you know, are how do you trust AI, but also how do you work ethically, and especially, you know, with warfare. So what are your, what are your thoughts on ethics in warfare and with AI's role with that? Well, first of all, I'm quite reassured that by the fact that the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center in the Department of Defense actually has an ethics element in it. That's a huge uh, and very tangible representation of acknowledgement by those at the senior levels in our Defense Department and in that center that ethical issues are hugely important. And you see this across the board in this field. As I mentioned, the idea of the human in the loop, how are you, we're all committed to a human in the loop. And in general, everyone says, of course, you have to have the human in the loop, especially if the outcome can be a kinetic one. But where in the loop and how in the loop, as we have discussed here, not let's shift a little bit to the world medical advances and so forth. And the extraordinary, uh, grandpa, I know you have strong views on this. But <laughs> he or she agrees. She does. Let's look at the field of DNA and you know the sequencing of the human genome and the ability now to actually make changes in that. And here in a, in a heartening direction, almost all countries, the major countries that are seeing the advances in these fields are again being quite cautious and conservative. Uh, about how these tools should be used. China agrees with this. Uh, You may recall there was a certain activity in this realm that took place in China. There was a big reaction against it, and Chinese authorities agreed with that. Again, you're talking, I mean, this is literally becoming, in a sense, if you will, in quotes, the hand of God, that you can alter the appearance of of a person. You can alter, again, the building blocks of that person. Now, that can be very, very good if it enables the elimination of some genetic component that dooms every individual who has that to a life that is less than full. But that needs to be very, very carefully thought through before, again, these ethical guidelines are agreed. And again, I'm quite reassured in the approach that does characterize what's going on in that field right now. There's a fabulous new book on all of this by Walter Isaacson, one of the deepest thinkers and best writers and biographers and so forth. 
And I think it's, it's something that I would strongly commend to those who are watching this podcast. Yeah, I've read that book. It's completely uh, fascinated. I got to meet him and heard him talk and there, there's, yeah, it's definitely recommended. And yeah, along those lines of bioengineering could help both civilization as well as militarily. Like, where do you see see that um, helping with, with our preparedness and our defense 10 or even 50 years from now? Well, again, there can be some wonderful features in this if it can reduce certain diseases, if it can... I mean, let's keep in mind that it's advances in this field that enabled the scientists to develop the vaccines that we're now administering to tens of millions of people. And they did so within, as I recall it, a week or two or less of getting the description, the genetic description of this particular virus that has caused this pandemic. So that's unbelievable. And all the rest of the time was taken up with the first test and the second test and all these very, very understandably time-consuming verifications, validations that this will not cause some kind of uh, massive reaction or downside or death or what have you. But think about that and then realize that I believe the last huge breakthrough of this type, the polio vaccine, took something on the order of six years. Um, So think what these tools are enabling Again, the researchers in the health arena in particular, the life sciences sector, to do. And again, it's nothing short of breathtaking. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what do you think we can learn from this uh, lost year, you know, due to the virus? And how can we, you know, be better prepared for the next pandemic and, you know, biodefense? Well, there are numerous lessons in a whole variety of different fields. I mean, including, for example, that, you know, maybe we don't all need to travel as crazily as we used to. And, you know, the this frenetic schedule of flying around the world, you know, I do 25 countries in a year, one of them six to eight times alone, all the major cities in the United States. I mean, is that really necessary in a world of Zoom? No, it's not actually. And we've learned a lot about how to be vastly more efficient with our time. And and again, the new normal as a result is not going to be just a resumption of the old normal. There are going to be changes that endure. And among those changes very likely will be that not everyone is going to go to offices as used to be the case. In fact, in some different companies, depending on what they do, uh, we already see some really big tech companies that are saying they're, they're never going to require Uh, their employees to come back to the office. There'll be a degree of individual choice and what are the personal circumstances and so forth. So that's a whole realm of how we work. There's going to be lessons learned about how we play, how we travel, how we, all of these, there's going to be uh, a series of uh, lessons taken from this that we will see in behavior going forward. But when it comes to the issue of how can we do better the next time there is something that emerges like this virus that led to this pandemic. Uh, Clearly, there are lots of actions that can and must be taken. 
whether it is much better surveillance so that it's identified very early on. Uh, international organizations play a role in this, as do our own national departments and, and agencies and centers. The distribution of information, uh, the big ideas at which we ultimately arrived uh, that were put out by the Centers for Disease Control and the National Governors Association, but which frankly were undermined uh, in some cases at the federal and state level and weren't followed and, and so forth and so on. The very big ideas literally about how do you aggregate the requirements for procurement, for validation of needs, and for distribution of those. All of these, there's tons of lessons that I think we have learned, or in some cases, frankly, relearned. And also, of course, what should be in the national stockpile when it comes to personal protective equipment, uh, to a variety of different drugs and, and so forth. So again, I there will be lots and lots of lessons learned, sessions of inquiries into what we did what we didn't do, what we should have done, and most importantly, what we need to do next time. And again, I think there will be uh, a lot of corrective measures taken and a lot of lessons learned from this that absolutely should enable us to do a far better job next time, because there will be a next time. There has been experience of this in the past, multiple experiences, SARS and so forth. And in some cases, we did much better. Some cases, the context and the circumstances were very different. But clearly, we have to learn from an experience that, again, has killed over a half million of our fellow citizens. All right. Do you envision AI having a role in uh, the next pandemic preparedness? Sure. Yeah. And again, I think that the surveillance systems will be enabled and very much by at the very least, machine learning, and over time, certainly by artificial intelligence. And those systems uh, will enable the identification of such an outbreak, uh, will alert decision makers to that, will validate certain aspects of it, and could even you know, pop up a, what the playbook should be. In addition to, of course, very rapidly providing the information and perhaps even solving problem of what should the vaccination consist of? What should the vaccine be? So, you know, if you take this several levels and perhaps decades down the road, that's what we're going to see in reality. You were talking about getting that competitive advantage almost so much that you know, it's really un unstoppable. What um, do you view the, the role of the Space Force and, and also you know, the future of colonizing beyond Earth? Well, I, I do believe that the Space Force as an institution was called for. I, I agree with the decision and how it is being structured at present in the organizational architecture and so forth underneath the Department of the Air Force still, which will economize on some of the aspects of the institutional elements that need to be established in the short run at the very least. But clearly, space is a very, very rapidly advancing frontier. You see the advent of personal companies, uh, whether it's SpaceX or Virgin Galactic, I think it is, or Blue Origin. I mean, again, these showing to be vastly more agile, much cheaper, 
I mean, the idea of reusable rockets and boosters and all the rest of that is just transformative in and of itself. And so within a number of years, you're going to, you know, be able to book yourself on the ultimate e-ticket. If you remember the, the, the greatest rides at Disney land, the most extreme, if you will, were those that required an e-ticket. And this is going to be the, the most ultimate e-ticket ever envisioned. Uh, you can go into space and experience weightlessness for yourself. But beyond that, of course, there are many, many scientific and research advances uh, that are possible in a world of zero gravity or different gravity. The exploration that this allows is going to be extraordinary. You mentioned the role of, again, artificial intelligence-powered machines on Mars uh, that will carry out a variety of activities in the weeks and months that lie ahead. Uh, so again, this is it's long been identified as the new frontier, the and it still is to some degree, but you're now seeing advances accelerating uh, that are once again going to transform what goes on in space in a whole variety of different ways. And the Space Force, I think, is an appropriate answer to that within the U.S. military structure and in the Department of Defense. But you're seeing extraordinary advances in the private sector as well. So are you personally interested in going to space? I don't know that that's on my bucket list right now, candidly. There's a lot of nearer-term objectives, like getting on my bicycle this afternoon and pedaling 30 miles or a variety of other physical activities that have to do with fitness and so forth. So, And I've got a pretty, um, pretty consuming portfolio of activities now with a more than full-time job as a partner with KKR and chairman of the KKR Global Institute, but then also... Um, academic endeavors at Yale and in the UK, a whole variety of think tanks with which I'm actually active, two boards on which I sit, and about 20 venture investments to keep an eye on, not to mention two soon-to-be three grandchildren and two great kids and spouses and wife and all the rest of that. So, And don't forget the family dog, which, as you heard, has strong views on some of these issues also. That's great. And yeah, you are the most ambitious person I've ever met. So, and congratulations in advance on the uh, grandkids. Thank you. Thanks. They're, they're wonderful. Uh, a whole new adventure. The oldest is three or three and a half. So uh, this is a wonderful discovery learning endeavor for grandma and grandpa. Great. And yeah, with grandkids, new generations on the way, what do you want your legacy to look like? Um, you know, if you draw back a bit, I guess, and, you know, reflect on what I sought to do in, in uniform and the intelligence community, and perhaps even in, in the business world, I guess it is to encourage uh, never-ending learning, to be a learning organization yourself, and to help ensure that the organizations which are privileged to be a part are striving to learn and uh, to be inquisitive and to explore and all the rest of that. And uh, that idea of education, and particularly for those of us in the military and in government service, where you tend to work very long hours, it's almost culturally, it's almost genetic, actually, that, you know, you're really, your nose is definitely to the grindstone, and you never leave before the boss does, and you're in before the boss comes in. And 
And you also have a slightly cloistered existence because, again, you're living on a base, perhaps you're mingling socially with the same people that you tend to work with in those endeavors. And so out of your intellectual comfort zone experiences are of the greatest value, at least in my personal and professional development. For me, that was going to a civilian graduate school. And it was a transformative uh, experience. You know, not only do you learn better critical thinking skills and analytical skills and, you know, certain fundamental capabilities and certain knowledge in certain sectors, you also learn, I think, or you should, a degree of intellectual humility that there are seriously bright people out in the world who don't see it the same way that we do. And I had very much lived the grindstone cloister syndrome prior to going to graduate school. And so it was this extraordinary two-year experience for me. And in many respects, you know, when people ask me, what, how did you know what to do when you were first in Iraq and as a young two-star general division commander of the great 101st Airborne Division, and you seemed to know what needed to be done? I said, gosh, it may have been graduate school at Princeton that uh, enabled me best of all. Certainly, it was the experiences that I had in Central America briefly or Haiti with the United Nations force or Bosnia for a year or some of these other deployments, Kuwait and so forth. But at the end of the day, it was really, I think, what was developed during that time in that most out of my intellectual comfort zone experience of my life. And so as a result, when talking to people about how do you uh, strive to be someone who is constantly learning, exploring, inquiring, uh, I think having those kinds of experiences is absolutely uh, essential. And then I think just conveying the idea that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And what individuals should do is try to prepare for those opportunities. They may never come along. I mean, there was only one surge in Iraq during my military career. Uh, It just so happened that I was in a position to be selected by the president to command that surge. And in many respects, when you look back, you know, I spent my entire life preparing for that particular task at that particular moment. Um, It may never have come, but the key is that if it did come, that you be prepared for it and that you are therefore perhaps lucky as a result. And there is luck, there is timing, but there's also preparation. And again, all of us should just strive to be as prepared as we possibly can for what will present itself in our lives, not just professionally, but personally as well. Well, great. Well, General, thank you for those words of wisdom. And we greatly appreciate your service and your leadership and your time. So thank you so much. Uh, The privilege is mine, Ari. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of More Intelligent Tomorrow. Feel free to subscribe to continue discovering the heroes of tomorrow, illuminating the path forward today. Visit us at datarobot.com slash podcast to learn more.